John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And this is, uh, man, this is one of the most, I don't know, beautiful, precious passages of Scripture in all of the New Testament. And so what a privilege to get to dive into it this morning. Do you guys, why don't we stand together? And actually, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. Is this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray this morning. Lord, Father, we pray that you'd be glorified. Today, Lord, be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet. You may be seated. It's warm in here, isn't it? Is it warm in here? Can we, yeah, Good. It's not just me. Can we flip that back door open a bit there, Dar, so we get a little bit of air moving? Good thing those guys closed the curtains, even though I was giving them a hard time. Hey, okay. Yeah, let the light in. That's right. Sweet. Well, like I said, I mean, this is, isn't this a great passage of Scripture? Don't you love this passage of Scripture? Like, this is a wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture, and and it's especially beautiful because it deals with um, like the most commonest of human ailments, and that's this, heart trouble. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. And, you know, when we think about the physical side of things and heart trouble, we know it's like, I don't know, they say it's, is it the number one killer or like, you know, one in three or one in two people die of, of heart disease we know that's the reality on the physical side of things and on the spiritual side of things, the heart is like the one part of your body that quickly reflects the condition of your mind and your thoughts and where your spirit's at. It's like anxiety comes, worry comes, trouble comes, your thoughts are shaken and your, your heart can be shaken. 
And you can have trouble in your heart. And heart trouble is caused by dread, by fear, by anxiety, uh, by worry, by fear of the future, not knowing what's going to happen next. Now, it's interesting, you know, I just, we live in, we live in a day and an age when people are like, what's going to happen next? And there's fear and there's anxiety. And that was the case for the disciples. They were sharing in that human fear and anxiety on this, on this night as they were hanging out with Jesus. I mean, no doubt it was the night of his arrest. They didn't know that that was yet coming. They didn't comprehend all that was coming down the pipe. They didn't know all that was coming down the pipe. And they were already deeply distressed. And they had heart trouble happening. And it was sourced in news that Jesus had already shared with them. He had told them, he just told them, one of you is going to betray me. And they were all questioning, is it I, is it I, is I? And then, you know, this exchange with Judas and out he goes and nobody really knew what was going on. And so they, they knew one of them was to betray him, even though Jesus had identified the betrayer, they, they didn't understand. Jesus had told them that Peter was going to deny him. Peter, you know, like kind of the leader of the group, the man's man of the group, the other, you know, the, the mouth of the group would deny him, the man who to them seemed so courageous. And Jesus also told them this, that he was going to leave them. And, and so knowing these things, we've got a betrayer in our midst that even the toughest among us is going to deny him and, and the Jesus is going to leave us and hear what was supposed to be this nice evening together with the master turned into this mysterious evening of anxiety and, and fear as they wondered about the things that Jesus had shared with them. And the result is this, their hearts were troubled. And the language actually says this, that their hearts were agitated, that, that they were disquieted, that, that inner calmness had become inner commotion. And fear and anxiety and worry of the unknown gripped their hearts. You know, fear, when you talk about fear, fear can drive you to do crazy things. Have you ever done stupid things in fear? You know, the, the, old, the Russian dictator Stalin had eight bedrooms. And each of them functioned as a safe room, and he would never communicate to anyone which room he was staying in because he feared assassination. That's crazy. There's a story of a, a Japanese veteran who when World War II ended he feared that he would be executed because the army had lost had lost and so he hid on the island of Guam in a cave for 28 years following World War II and he'd stay in that cave and he'd only come out during the evening to collect food and scavenge and find something to eat until finally after 28 years he was found by some hunters who convinced him I think it's okay you can you can come out of your cave and he went home and was welcomed home. Like fear and anxiety will drive you to do crazy things. I remember when I was a kid, my, my grandparents had a, a camping spot a lot at where they had their RV out at Mount Baker. And one night I begged my parents to sleep out in the tent and no one would go stay in the tent with me. And I was pretty young. And I woke up in the morning and I saw this shadow over my tent that looked like this. And it was 
doing one of these, and I screamed and screamed and screamed for my mom to come, and she never came. <laughs> and finally, in my fear and anxiety, I opened to discover it was just the tree, you know, <laughs> hanging, over, hanging over the tent. But it's so fascinating, right? When you think of fear and anxiety, it's like epidemic in our culture. Do you know that? Like hopelessness is epidemic in our culture. I, I, I just like consider the things that are going on, all, all the fears that have gripped people's hearts and the anxiety that's grabbed them and the, the, the fear of the unknown and not knowing what the future is going to bring. It's like, it's epidemic. Well, Jesus said this. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Believe in God, you know, when he says that, I think, well, you know, lots of people believe in God. Like if you ask around and you'd like just poll people and you talk to your coworkers or you talk to different neighbors or people you know, you, you discover that, you know, lots of people believe in God, however they want to define that. But Jesus actually said this, it's not belief in God that will cure your heart. It's believe in God and believe also in me, Jesus said. Be believe in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. Trust me, he says. Except my word is true. I I'm not the kind of person that's going to leave you with false hopes. I'm not the kind of person that encourages wishful thinking and gives platitudes. I wouldn't tell you something if it's not true. I won't deceive you. You can trust me. I always tell you the truth. I will not delude you. I won't lead you into false thinking. You know, in Jesus' time, there was plenty of people that were delusioned by him, you know, disillusioned by him. That was one of the reasons why they wanted to put him to death. He, he challenged their false ideas about themselves. He challenged their false ideas about who, who God is. He, he challenged their false ideas about the future. And so Jesus says to his disciples, he says this, trust me, believe in me. If it weren't so, I would have told you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Je Jesus was saying this, that, that, that the proper approach to questions about the future is to put your trust in Jesus. To put your faith in God and his son Jesus. And he asked these disciples, he said, believe in me. He's asking them to have a, a personal faith in him. And he asked that they believe, which is amazing because he is asking them, believe in God, but believe also in me. To believe in me equally as you believe in God. Along with God, because I am God, make me the object of your faith. And Jesus told them, as he said these things, he began to tell them about Heaven. He said the, the key to keeping your heart from being overwhelmed with sadness and depression and anxiety and worry is that you, you put your faith in me and you remember that in me you have a future. That in me you have a home. A home in heaven. Look at verse two. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and will take you to myself that you may, uh, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. You know, when fear and sadness and worry and anxiety and depression come and, and your heart is troubled, the, the world gives us different messages. The world says, well, you know, don't worry. Maybe that's not going to happen. You're like, okay, well, maybe it won't happen, but people worry about death. That's going to happen. Like, that's going to happen. Or the world says, you know, you know, it turns it into this comparison game. Well, you know, there's other people that are worse off than you, so just shake it off. Shake it off. And, and that can be true, but how's that supposed to help your heart when your heart's shaking? And the world says all sorts of other things and hands out, Shallow lines, whatever it can dish out, shallow truths, whatever it can, can give us. And what Jesus shares here is not shallow. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Now let me tell you about the future. Let me tell you what is coming down the pipe. I won't leave you in any doubt. Your heart can be at peace as you put your faith in me. I am going to prepare a place for you. And I read that and I think, yeah, you know, like according to Jesus, heaven is a real place. It's not just religious imagination. It's not wishful thinking. This is when we talk about heaven, it's not pie in the sky. Heaven is the place where God the Father dwells and where Jesus sits today at his right hand at the throne of majesty. And the scripture uses different language to convey the truths of heaven. Like in 2 Peter, Peter talks about Heaven as a kingdom. In 1 Peter, he describes heaven as our inheritance. In Hebrews, the writer describes heaven as a country. And then he goes on and he describes heaven as a city. In, in John chapter 14, here we read Jesus and he talks about heaven as a home, as a house. And church followers of Jesus, I just want to remind you, Heaven is your home. Heaven is your home. You're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Your city is a heavenly one. Your country, your inheritance is a heavenly one. It's not of this earth. And the disciples, here's the disciples, they're worried about Jesus leaving them. So when he commanded them, let not your hearts be troubled, he told them about heaven, and he told them two things about heaven. He said, I'm going there, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare the Father's house for you. And secondly, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you to be with me that you may be where I am. Isn't that a wonderful hope? The hope of Christianity, the hope of following Jesus, that Jesus is preparing a place for us, and he's promised he's going to come back, and he's going to take us to be with him. And so Jesus is saying this, you don't have to worry. You don't need to have separation anxiety. What I'm doing has a purpose. I, I'm going to go, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you, that you'll be, I'll take you from this world and you'll, you'll live with me forever and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know, in heaven, Jesus is doing two things right now. He's preparing a place for his people and he's at work in his church. He's preparing a people for the place. 
And our destiny, our future, our hope as followers of Jesus involves a person, Jesus, but it also involves a place, a home, a house, heaven, the Father's house. And Jesus said, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. Some translations use that word mansions. We like, we like sing about that, right? Mansions of glory and, you know, some, some sweet day will fly away. I think we sang that last week, right? And it's interesting. I don't know what you think of. What do you think of when you think of mansions? I'm like, wow, big piece of property and an estate. And off in the distance, there's another one over there where somebody else lives and over there. But that's actually not the picture. We got kind of like the, the, the false idea of, of what a, a, a mansion is. The, the, the good translation is that there's a room. That it's one house. And in that house, there's a room prepared for you. It's a house with many, many rooms. And Jesus says, there's room for you. There's room for you in my Father's house. I'm making room for you in my Father's house. Which is amazing, because you remember when Jesus was born? What they said about him? It's Mary and Joseph wandered from place to place looking for a spot to give birth to that Savior of the world. So there's no room for him. No room here. No room for Jesus, but Jesus said this, in my Father's house, there's room for you. There's room for you. There was no room for me, but I'll make a room for you. There's no shortage of accommodation in heaven. <laughs> the Father's house. And it's hard for us to imagine when we think of that, but, but Jesus simply implied this as he's teaching this. He said, this hope... Don't let your hearts be troubled. Know this. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. Th this hope, this assurance of a, of a heavenly home is to be a source of happiness for us as, as his followers, a source of assurance, a source of joy. And, and what makes it this source of joy and hope and assurance is not just that we have a place, but then when we get there, guess who's there? Jesus is there. This is our hope. This is our expectation, eternity with Jesus. This is the expectation of those who are saved. Jesus is there, and he's going to come back again. Jesus is coming back again, church. I like that song we sang this morning. It said, we, some, we, it said some line about we need to be reminded of these things. I need to be reminded of this all the time. The word of God, the New Testament prophesies 300 times it tells us that Jesus is going to come a second time. He's coming again. And he says, I'll come back and I'll take you. I'll look after you. I'll look after you. You don't need to be afraid. That's why the word of God tells us 365 times, don't be afraid. One time for every day of the year, the, the scripture gives the command, do not be afraid. And Jesus says in verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. I love Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I, it, you kind of laugh as you read this because it's like Jesus has just plainly said where he's going, to the Father's house. He was returning to the Father's side. He said, faith in me is the key to your future. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
He's telling them the Father's house is real. It's a real place. It's a loving place. It's a place where God dwells. And as we're going to see, it's an, ex- it's an exclusive place. Not everyone gets to go there. But those who have trusted in Jesus Christ do. And so in verse 6, in response to Thomas, Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's one of the seven I am statements that John records in his gospel that Jesus spoke. I, I read this, I think, man, this is one of the greatest things Jesus ever said, don't you think, right here? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He did not say that he knew the way. He did not say, I am a way. He said, I'm the way. He did not speak about truth and say, your truth and my truth and I'm a truth and you might find truth. He said, I am the truth. He did not say that he knew the way to life or maybe we could figure it out. He said, I am the life. He declared himself to be the, the answer, the key to all mysteries in life, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way. That picture is important because we know what the Bible declares to us, that man is separated from, from God, that between human beings and their creator exists this valley, this separation, this division due to sin that is so vast, that is completely impassable, from a human viewpoint, it's a broken relationship. And Jesus said, I am the way to the Father. I'm the way to bring you back to God. I'm the exclusive path. I am the narrow road. I am the bridge that spans the divide between your creator and you. I'm the way. I am the way and no one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I'm the truth. I read that truth is the scarcest commodity in the world. But yeah, I just watched our election. I don't know what's up, what's down. I, like, I, I, I watch the news. I don't know what's truth and what's false. I, I can't identify truth in my culture anymore. I can't identify truth in my culture. I don't even, you, I don't even know if like videos are made with facial recognition software and if they're real or not anymore. I don't know what's up. I don't know what's down. Truth is the scarcest commodity in our culture and in our world. Jesus said, I'm the truth. Philosophers have searched for truth and no one mind has ever been able to grasp truth. No one is pure enough in their own hearts to say, I'm truth. I always act in truth. There's no deceit in me. You know, I think about this as Jesus says this, I'm the truth. Within hours, he's going to stand before Pilate and Pilate's, Pilate's going to say to him, what is truth? What is truth? And truth is not like some abstract system. Truth is not like a set of rules. Truth does not change Truth is not defined by individuals. It's not my truth and your truth. Truth is unchanging. Truth is consistent. 
Truth is found in a person. That's what Jesus is telling us. The truth is found in a person. I am the truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus, that means this. Jesus is reality. When you look out on the vast expanse of this world and you say, what's real? I'll tell you what's real. Jesus is real. Jesus is the real world. He's not just truth personified. He is truth at the very core of who he is. He defines reality and Jesus exposes falsehood. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus said, I'm the life. In John 1, 4, John tells us that in him was life and that life was the light of man that we know this, that life originates with God, physical life, spiritual life, eternal life. The scripture says, in God, in him, we live and we move and we have our being that he is the source of life. And Jesus told Nicodemus in that famous conversation in John chapter three, that unless a man is born again, he will never see the kingdom of God. That is this, unless you come to Jesus you will never know true life. You don't have spiritual life without Jesus, that real life is imparted from the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life on a cross for our sins and was buried and raised from the dead. And when I think of that, I think, you know, following Jesus is not a religion. Following Jesus is not a set of rules. Following Jesus is not a philosophical system. Following Jesus is this, him imparting life to you. Him imparting divine life and power and presence into your life. Following Jesus is vitality. Following Jesus is the spirit-filled life. Jesus is the life. And without Jesus... There's no going to heaven. Without Jesus, the way which you travel is the path of the lost. Without Jesus is to be without truth. To be without Jesus is to be without life. You're dead in your sin, the scripture says. He's the way, the truth, and the life. You want to know how to get to heaven? You want to know the way to heaven? then all you have to do is get to know Jesus. You want to know the truth? The reality about God, the reality about yourself, the reality about the universe? Then you just get to know Jesus. Do you want to know what life is, what it means to really live and have abundant, full life? Then all you have to do is get to know Jesus. And Jesus said to Thomas and the boys in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Je Jesus says, in, in me, not only do you have the hope of heaven, not only can your heart be calmed of its troubles, but in me, you can know the nature of the father. You can know the nature of the father. You know, do you wonder what God's like? Do you wonder what the Father is like? Well, all you have to do is get to know Jesus. 
The disciples hadn't grasped this yet. I think we struggle to grasp this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Philip's asking this, well, show us the Father. What's the Father like? Philip wanted to see the Father. I can understand that he wanted to see the Father as plainly as he could see Jesus. Many people make these kind of comments about God. They say, well, if God was visible, if only I could see him with my physical eyes, I'd believe if, if only God could be brought down to a level where I could understand him, where I could touch him, where I could see him, then I'd believe. But look at what Jesus says in verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus said, you know the Father already. You've been hanging out with me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You know, I remember, I remember there was this kind of this wave in church, you know, this trend that was happening like in the 90s. It totally bugged me. So I'm just going to say it bugged me. And... Um, I used to hear it like so often and I think that it's like faded a little bit. It, yeah, it was like a 90s church trend. When believers would say this, they would say, well, I can't relate to God as father because of my earthly dad. You know, my earthly dad was absent. My earthly dad was abusive for whatever reason. I can't relate. And I would just tell you that that's, you have something wrong theologically. You have something wrong in your thinking, if that's what you think. See, understanding your heavenly father has nothing to do with your earthly dad. Understanding your heavenly father has nothing to do with your earthly father. You have to separate those two things. Understanding your heavenly father has everything to do with understanding Jesus. Knowing who Jesus is. And if you're looking at your earthly father, then, then the actual problem with your heavenly father is that you're looking in the wrong direction. Your earthly father is irrelevant. Sorry, I'm a dad. But when it comes to my children's relationship with Jesus at some point, as much as I've invested, I'm at some point I am immaterial, I'm irrelevant. It matters between them and Jesus. And if you want to know the nature of the father, you look at Jesus, you study the son. You know, I'm an earthly father. There's earthly fathers here, my earthly father. Earthly fathers are broken men. They're sinners in need of saviors like their children. So we don't look to our earthly fathers to understand our heavenly father. Do you know where we look to understand our heavenly father? We look at Jesus. We look at Jesus. Jesus, knowing and seeing Jesus. Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. Jesus said, knowing him and seeing him is the same thing as seeing the Father. And we know what that means. He's saying, I'm God. The Father and I are one. Very clearly claiming to be God. Look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you and... The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but my Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the accounts, on the account of the works themselves. Now I read this and I think, you know, what Jesus says here is, is you know, 
do you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? It's like, it's subjective. It's like, well, how can you say that, Jesus? Like, how do we measure that? Like, that's like, that's great that you think that way, but how am I to know? And Jesus says, well, you can know. You can know this. You can know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And the way you know, the way that you can objectively look at this is to look at my word and to look at the things that I do, to look at my works. Look at my word. Look at my works. The evidence is the word I have spoken. The evidence is the works I have done. He says, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. We know this about Jesus. He said, I never say anything unless the Father tells me to say it. I wish I had that kind of self-control. <laughs> I'll deal with you later, Calvin. Um, no, just kidding. Um, you know, even Jesus' enemies said this about him. They said, no one ever spoke like this man. Those, the crowds that heard him when he taught, they recognized that his speaking was different. And they said, this guy... He doesn't teach like the teachers of the law. There's authority to what he says. He had authority in his teaching and they noted, they noted that about him. Jesus, when he spoke to his disciples, he said about his word, he said, my words are spirit and they're life. And so Jesus said this, he tells them on this night, he says, if, if you want to know the father, and if you want to know that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, then just do this. Look at my words. Know my words. Know my word. The Father is in me and I'm in the Father. But he said, you, can't, you don't have to just look at my word. Even, well, maybe you don't believe my word. Then look at my works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Jesus said the works, the, the signs that I have performed are evidence of the Father's power working in and through me. The signs demonstrate it. The signs demonstrate this truth that, that and, and John, as we've seen, we've been going through the Gospel of John here, that we've seen that John uses seven specific signs to communicate truth about Jesus. And it's very intentional. He, he, he tells only certain signs that Jesus performed. He, he tells about Jesus changing water into wine. And it's a sign that tells us Jesus is the master over quality, that he's good, that he reflects the Father in heaven, that everything that he touches is good and he always makes the best of the best. That's Because that's what Father is like. Jesus healed the official son and John chapter 4, a, a man who came from 25 kilometers away to say, Jesus, you got to come and see my son and heal him. And Jesus spoke a word and the boy was healed. And it was a sign telling us that distance is no obstacle to Jesus. He's the master over distance and space. And that's how Father is. Jesus healed the man at the, at the, at the pool, the lame man at the pools of Bethesda and and. That man had been lame for 38 years and that sign spoke to the fact that history is no obstacle for Jesus. That he's the master over time. That Jesus is the master over all of history because that's what Father is like. 
Jesus fed 5,000 in John chapter 6 with five loaves and a few small fish. It tells us that with Jesus, there's, there's never such a thing as not enough, that there's no lack in Jesus, that he's the master over quantity, that he's the master over volume, that he's the master over all resources, that there's no lack in his ability to supply. Nothing's impossible for him because that's what Father's like. Jesus walked on the water, John told us, to tell us, to show us that Jesus is the, the master of the laws of nature. That they bow to him. That nature serves him. Nature serves him. Because that's what Father is like. Na- it, the laws of the universe serve the master, the Father. Jesus in John chapter 9 healed a man born blind, a sign telling us that he's, He's the master over things we can't even explain. When we don't know what the source is and why this happened and where it came from and where it's going, Jesus wants us to know, I'm in control. I'm the master over what you think is misfortune. I'm the master over that which you think is unexplainable because that is what Father is like. He is in control. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11 in the tomb for four days. His body rotting and decomposing in that grave. Decay set into that lifeless flesh. And with a word, Jesus raised him from the dead. Because he's the master over death. That's what Father is like. These signs or these works tell us that the Father was at work in Jesus. Jesus was in the Father and the Father was in him. And these works don't just reveal, the signs that Jesus did don't just reveal the nature of Jesus. He's saying they reveal the nature of the Father. So Philip, person here, if you want to know what the Father is like, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The Father is glorified in the works of the Son. The very reason the Son came was to make the Father known that the Father would be glorified. In fact, even as we look at verse 12, these last few verses, the promise of these next verses is actually contingent on the fact that the Father be glorified. And I think we miss this often when we read this. Let's check it out, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You know, and I read that, I, I just think like over the years uh, in my own life, in the church, I think I, I, I hear this, that it's like we totally gloss over verse 13 for verse 14. We ch- look at verse 14. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Like that's the blank check verse, right? Like woohoo, blank checks from Jesus. And, and so we close our prayer with sometimes what can turn into this superstitious statement. I'm sorry, but we should say that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Like it's the magic formula. And prayer is answered. 
the condition to prayer being answered in Jesus' name is in verse 14. That the Father is glorified. He's, look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at Jesus was motivated by his Father's glory. That's what motivated Jesus. I talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus wasn't motivated by people's health and safety. Jesus was motivated by the Father's glory. What brings glory to my Father? This I will do. I will speak the words that he tells me to speak. I will do the things that he tells me to do. That the Father would be glorified in everything. You know, it's amazing that the scripture tells us in Philippians, because that this was the heart of Jesus, that God exalted him. That he bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth to the glory of God the Father. That's why we exalt Jesus, to the glory of the Father. To the glory of the Father. And so to these troubled hearts, Jesus says, look, heaven, man, I'm preparing a place for you. Church, we have the hope of heaven. To troubled hearts, Jesus said, you know the Father. We know the nature of the Father. And the third thing we see is this, is that we have the privilege of prayer. Like this speaks to troubled hearts. I'm preparing a place for you. I've made known to you your Father and I've given you the privilege of prayer. You can come to me and you can ask anything in my name and when my Father's glorified, I will do it. And I, I, I just so thankful for the privilege of prayer. You know, too often in my house, just like in your house, it's like the tack on at mealtime. In Jesus' name, amen. And Jesus attached his name. He said, I, I attach my name to your prayer and to the Father's glory. I attach my character to it, my personality, my power, my presence, that the Father would be glorified in your prayers and in the things that you ask. And, and you know, I think that when the, I think that, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, I've been stewing on this. But I, I think when the Father's glory is our greatest concern, when the Father's glory is what we're focused on, I believe the power of Jesus manifests in prayer. That that's what Jesus is like concerned about. Hey, would you be concerned about the things of my Father? And then, man, I want to work. I'll manifest my power and my glory. You know, all too often, my prayers, our prayers, your prayers, they're about me. It's like selfish, immature, micro. You know, I was thinking about this. When you don't know what to pray, I would just encourage you, pray this. Father, be glorified. I don't know what to pray, and I don't know what to do, Lord. So I pray, Father, be glorified in Jesus' name. Now help me. Amen. Jesus' name, amen. You know, in John chapter 11, at the tomb of Lazarus, as Jesus stood outside the tomb and Martha had come back to him, he said to her, Martha, 
Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then Jesus prayed. He, he said, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you heard me. I thank you that you always hear me. You know, I thank you that you're about to work. And I don't even say these things for my benefit, but for the benefit of those who are here that they may believe that you sent me. Then he said, roll the stone away. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out of the tomb. It was about the Father's glory. It was about the Father's glory. I, I told you, Martha, did you, if you believed, you would see the Father's glory. You know, in John chapter 12, there were some men that came to Jesus. They were Greek. They were at the festival to, to worship and they found Philip and they said, Philip, could you bring us to Jesus? We would like to, we'd like to see him. And Philip went to Andrew and Andrew and Philip together went and turned to Jesus. And they, they told Jesus the request and the scripture tells us that Jesus replied, he said, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, for this hour I came. And then he said this, Father, glorify your name. And you know the heavens shook? The earth shook? A voice came from heaven? Those who heard it said it sounded like thunder? And the Father said this? He said, I have glorified it. And I'll glorify it again. And the crowd, the crowd heard it. And Jesus, in response, said this. He said, this wasn't for my benefit. It was for yours. It was for yours. Father, be glorified. I, have, I am glorified, and I'll be glorified again. My name will be glorified. Church, don't let your hearts be troubled. We have the hope of heaven. We know the nature of the Father. We've been given the privilege and the place of prayer in the mighty name of Jesus, the name above all other names. And when these truths are, when these realities are coupled with our faith in, in Christ Jesus, it calms a troubled heart. So let's be concerned about the glory of the Father. Jesus said this, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's his exclusive claim. It's not my claim. His claim. No one comes to the Father except through me. You and I are just the, the errand boys and girls who get to share that message. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and that's the, that's like the, the final punch, man, the, the death blow against all of Satan's arguments 
that he establishes in human hearts and, and minds that delude us into thinking, no, I can get to the Father by being religious. I can get to heaven through my good works. I'm a sincere person. I'm moral. Jesus said, no, no. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I am the life. I'm the only way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Don't let your heart be troubled. The scripture tells us, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. You have the hope of heaven. You know your Father. You have the privilege of prayer. May he be glorified in our midst. Would you guys stand with me? Let's, let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come.